from Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. This is God's Word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around Your Word, we come to the One whose Word does not go out and never returns void, but You accomplish all that You desire. And so, Lord, will Your Word be powerfully present among us this morning. And will You bear Your good fruits? Speak to us, for Your servants are here to listen. Amen. Martin Rinkert was a Lutheran pastor. He served in a small walled city in Saxony. The city was named Ellenburg. He lived there in the early 1600s, and it was during the time of the Thirty Years' War. And so a walled city became a place of refuge. Ellenburg was a very precarious place, though. It was overrun three times during this period. But despite that, hundreds if not thousands of people would still come to the city for refuge. In that time, large numbers of people living in one small place brought one thing, that was pestilence and death. Hundreds and thousands of people died during this 30 years' war. Rinkert was the only pastor left in the town as a result of all the death and the suffering. In the year 1637, he buried 50 people a day. Staggering. He performed over 4,000 funerals inside of one year of his life, and that was including his own wife. So at some point during that season, Rinkert wrote a hymn. It may be familiar to you if you remember the old Trinity hymnal. It's number 98. Now thank we all our God. Listen to some of the words of what Rinkert writes on the tale of that experience of seeing such death, of seeing such massive suffering, of going through his own agony. He writes these words, Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done in whom his world rejoices. And then in verse 3, All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and Him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for this is, was, is now, and shall be evermore. When you just sing this hymn, you can think, wow, a joyous, bright mood. Put it in its context, and it challenges us. Here's a man in the depth of suffering, in the depth of his own pain, in destruction of civilization around him, and he's offering thanks to God. How does he do that? What kind of faith does it take to offer thanks to God in the middle of such trying circumstances. 
We find something similar going on in the Apostle Paul's life this morning in Philippians 1. After all, Paul was in prison when he writes this letter that abounds with joy and rejoicing. Look what he says in verse 18. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Making it doubly clear that he is rejoicing. His heart is filled with joy despite the fact that he's in prison despite the fact that there are some Christian preachers who are taking advantage of his imprisonment, and despite the fact that he might be executed. He will get into that in the next verses. We'll look at that next week. And so Paul has tremendous external pressures. Things are not going well, and what is he doing? He's rejoicing. He's giving thanks. And so is this just an eternal optimist putting on a plastic smile? Is it just someone who denies reality around him? Is that what Martin Rinkert and is that what the Apostle Paul were doing? Or was there perhaps something deeper at work? Not something superficial, teaching them to just smile in the midst of hardship, but was there a deeper joy that they knew that was underlying their character that taught them to say, yes, and I will rejoice. And that's the question that comes to us this morning from Christian experience and from the Bible itself. How do we learn to rejoice like Paul and even with Paul when our lives are turned upside down, when things aren't going well? We're going to see three things this morning that free us into this life of rejoicing. And the first is this is that if we're to rejoice in this way, it requires that we see our lives within God's larger purposes. Look what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, this could easily escape us. But in the first century, there was a way that you wrote letters. Just like we have dear, comma, and then of explanation of, uh, of why we are writing. Well, there were certain conventions that people followed in the first century in writing their own letters. And one of those conventions we see in verse 12 where it says, I want you to know. And typically what followed that in every example that we have is a report of the person's health and well-being. Okay, so if Paul was following the convention, he would say, I want you to know, and he would then report on his circumstances. What does Paul do? Does he report on his circumstances? No, it's, it's really interesting, because what he reports on are the gospel circumstances. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, this is curious that Paul reports on the gospel circumstances because he sees his life and he has a self-understanding that connects his well-being and his personal flourishing not to his circumstances, but to the gospels. And Paul has learned here to frame his own life and his own understanding of how he is doing on a larger map. He's put it on the map of God's purposes for the world and what God is working out. And this is the challenge for us. Can we see our lives through the lens of the gospel and of its advancement? 
Or do we live dictated by our own circumstances and the ups and downs, the varied things that happen to us? And every one of us knows the challenge of that. How easy it is to be overwhelmed by what is happening in our day-to-day lives. As one of my friends once told me, the only certainty in life is how uncertain it is. (laughs) That that is one thing you can bank on. There are other things to be certain in as well. But as Christians, we have this great certainty that God is working out His purposes, that He has a larger set of purposes, and we can frame our lives inside of those. And are we willing to go there? Are we willing to see when we are thrown in prison or when we are under the threat of execution or when our rivals are rising up against us, can we see God's larger purposes at work? Because look what Paul is saying. Even though I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing amongst the imperial guard. Now, the imperial guard was simply the praetorian guard. They were those devoted to uh, Caesar's household. They did special missions for him. They were roughly 9,000 soldiers. And it's not that the whole guard has converted, but what has happened is that they've heard of the gospel and they know why Paul is being confined. And so Paul is rejoicing that at the very heart of secular power in the first century world, the good news of King Jesus has been announced that it's being discussed, that it's being talked about. And so he sees the gospel advancing. And it's not just just despite adversity. It's because of adversity. And so Paul can look at adverse circumstances and still see not just a silver lining, but he sees what God is doing inside of these larger purposes. Now, as a student at Furman University, we had a requirement. They were called the Cultural Life Program. You had to have 36 of these things to graduate, okay? So that meant 12 a year. And CLPs were known for being tremendously boring. Um, That was what they were famed for. And so these CLPs, um, they were various things. Sometimes they were plays. Sometimes they were uh, really interesting. um, But sometimes you just had to get it done. And I had one of those nights where I just had to get it done because I needed to graduate. And so um, one of my friends grabbed me. He said, hey, there's a music concert. Let's go. And I won't mention the instrument uh, in case it causes offense. But it's not an instrument I'd ever heard played by itself before. Because it was a senior recital, and I'm sure the person was very talented, but it was awful. Just awful. That the instrument was played, and, and, and as we went through the songs, you could just tell that this was not an instrument that you normally heard by itself. And when it was pulled out by itself and put on central display, it wasn't particularly pretty. And it was all the focus on that instrument that for an hour I sat there falling asleep and looking at my friend and thinking it was never going to end. I didn't know what had quite happened. But then in speaking with one of my friends later about the way music and the way an orchestra works, I was complaining about this instrument. It was a French horn, I'll confess. Complaining about the instrument, he said, well, you know, Chuck, you really don't know what you're talking about because an orchestra would not be an orchestra without that horn. Without it adding what it does, what it brings, and it adds certain tones and brings out a certain fullness. 
And friends, that's how we have to look at our adversities in life is bringing out a certain fullness in God's larger narrative of what he's working out, that within his orchestra of what he's working out on the larger map of his purposes, that our setbacks, that our adversities, that our difficulties, they are actually in his service. And this takes a deep form of trust and faith that stretches us to the very limits of what we can believe. But I promise you, if a French horn can add to the beauty of an overall orchestra, then so can our adversities. And this is what Paul is counseling us with. This is what he encourages us to see. And so if we are to learn to rejoice, we have to put our lives inside of that bigger map of God's purposes in the world. That's the first thing. The second is if we're to rejoice like Paul and with Paul, it requires a confidence in the gospel's power to accomplish God's purpose. We need to look for a second at this word that Paul uses over and over. It's a word that you're accustomed to. It's the word gospel. It simply means good news. But when Paul uses it, he uses it out of a very specific context from the Old Testament. And so if you have a Bible, if you'll please turn with me to Isaiah 40. We're going to get super geeky here for a second, okay? Get ready. Isaiah 40 begins an awesome section of this prophetic book where the end of Israel's exile is being announced. And we find in these chapters from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66, the word gospel is used several times. We're going to look at two of them. And so in, in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now what's happening here is that God is announcing through the prophet Isaiah that Israel's exile is over, that her sins have been atoned for, and now God is going to restore His reign. Okay? John the Baptist picks up these same words from Isaiah 40 as he announces the coming of Jesus. Because what he's announcing is that the time of earth's exile is over. That God is restoring His reign. Work down further in chapter 40 to verse 9. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. The word good news there is gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So what is the announcement of the gospel? What were they to get up on the high mountain and declare? Behold your God. That was the announcement of the good news. And put in context inside of Isaiah 40, that was the announcement that God was returning to Israel to restore His reign through David's Son over His people. Okay, Flip over to chapter 52. We'll see it once again. In verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings gospel, who publishes peace, who brings, who brings gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What's the publication of the gospel? Your God reigns. And what the Apostle Paul, when he takes up this word in the book of Philippians, what he is speaking of 
is the reign of God that has been brought to earth through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he goes explicitly there where he says that the name above all names has been given to Jesus and that every knee will bow to him. And he actually is quoting from Isaiah chapter 45 at that point. And this is in Paul's bones that when he uses this word gospel, he's referring to this larger story that was sketched out in the book of Isaiah. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's ruling over all reconciling all things to God. And so Paul, one of the reasons that he can rejoice in adversity and he, is that he is convinced that this announcement of the reign of God in Jesus has a particular power to it. That God will accomplish His purposes through it. And Paul was in a rough situation. If you remember just the larger context of the New Testament, there were many different kinds of preachers. There were some preachers who were of a more Jewish persuasion who said, yes, you must believe in Jesus and you must continue adhering to the law. The book of Galatians is all about that. And Paul here in verse, in verse 15 references that situation. Look what he says. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." And so the situation is that some of the Jewish Christian preachers were taking advantage of this moment when Paul had been removed from the scene. And they were using that moment to express their own opinions. That the chief of the other party had been sidelined and imprisoned. And these do appear to be Christians because they were proclaiming Christ. They were preaching the gospel of a certain variety. And we might think that that would cause Paul great consternation. But what does he say? He says, look, some people preach out of a good heart and some people don't. But it's really of no matter to me. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And do you see what Paul saw? What he saw was that the Gospel's power was not concerned with our motivations. Whether our motivations were good or whether they were bad, the good news announces a reality. That Jesus is Lord of Lords. That Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. That's what it announces. It's an objective truth. Jesus sits in a certain office ruling over all things. And whatever your motive is, whether it's a good one or a bad one, whether you do it out of rivalry or selfish ambition, is no matter. that what was important to him was that the gospel itself was proclaimed and that it had a certain power and it would return those fruits to God. Now, several years ago when I first started planting a church, I discovered that another church was being planted very close to me and I received a phone call from a young guy who wanted to, uh, to meet and discuss that situation. He was the other church planter. 
And uh, so going into that lunch, I could feel my own pride and defensiveness welling up. And so on the way, I was praying and asking that God would beat back all of these impulses for rivalry in me because they were strong. We sat down at lunch, and uh, there was some friendly conversation exchanging just the niceties. We were both Southern. And then we cut to the chase. And he said, why are you planning a church here? Because he was from the big powerful church in town and had a large group of people, and I was, <laughs> I was not. Um, and uh, what was I doing? And something about the words, you don't belong here, were probably shared. And all those senses of rivalry and selfish ambition just seem to be, not just under the surface, but right up on top. And what were we going to do with that? Because I felt it, and he felt it. And friends, this is how easily competition raises its head inside of a church context. And we tend to become about our distinctives and why we are better, perhaps our ministry philosophy, and we begin to put down others in order to justify ourselves. And Paul really doesn't have much of that attitude within him. That what he celebrates and what he rejoices in is that the gospel is advancing. Now, obviously, I believe that denominations and having your distinctives are okay. It's fine to have those distinctives, but what we can't do is we can't retreat from this one position, that we want to be capital G gospel, the reign of our Lord Jesus, and that He's reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to God through Christ. Capital G gospel. And then we can be little p Presbyterian. That's great. Presbyterianism has some wonderful features about it. And it's an attempt to work out the truths of Scripture and to bring those into application in the church's life. But we don't do so as if to proclaim that being Presbyterian is to just be gospel. And that everyone outside of this Presbyterian camp is not gospel. That doesn't work, according to Paul. That Paul said, no, if there's different motives, if there's different, uh, even some different distinctives, it's okay because I'm content that Christ is being proclaimed. And friends, that reflects a deep understanding that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That that's what we can celebrate. That yes, we can have our distinctives, but we're going to celebrate this broader picture, this broader map of the power of the gospel to bring salvation. John Frame, my professor in seminary, wrote a book called Evangelical Reunion. Listen to what he says. He says, again, denominational loyalty is not entirely a bad thing. It just needs to be brought into balance. Presbyterians ought to be good Christians first and good Presbyterians second without neglecting either loyalty. And friends, this is what frees us up when we become devoted to and centered upon the gospel. That we become capital G, gospel, or capital K, King Jesus. And then we begin to work out our distinctives after that. And this is what leads to Paul's rejoicing, just that the gospel is going out in that way. Now the third thing that leads us to rejoice, or what our rejoicing requires, it requires a source of joy 
that lies outside of our own circumstances. Were Paul's circumstances very compelling? Most likely not. It was most likely some form of house arrest, but he was most likely also chained to someone else. So his situation was not abject, but he did live in the fear that he was going to be tried and that he would be executed for proclaiming that there was another gospel. Because the reigning gospel of the Roman world was that Caesar is Lord. And he was proclaiming another king, and he was being accused of this very actively. But Paul's joy was not located in his present circumstances. He rooted it in something else. He found a larger horizon on which to attach himself. And what was that horizon? It's this word that we're circling around this morning. It's gospel. It's that God is restoring all things, that King Jesus is upon His throne, that He's not elected and He can't be kicked out of office, that there are no hanging chads when it comes to King Jesus. Wasn't that the state of Florida? Okay. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, It's like a Seinfeld reference now. You know, it's just completely out of date. But that he sees that Jesus is on his throne, that it doesn't matter about any warfare that will happen. It doesn't matter about any circumstances. It doesn't matter about cancer or any disappointment, that nothing changes the fact that Jesus is ruling over all and will one day return to restore all things. That's the source. It's an external source that Paul has that grounds and roots his joy. Turn with me to Psalm 98, where you get a picture of Paul's piety, just where he found the roots for this, where his spirituality came from. Psalm 98 begins, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And what Paul saw in the coming of Jesus was that this mighty deliverance This revelation of the right hand of God, of God's righteousness being made known and manifested, had happened in Jesus. That it was objective fact. And that the world fundamentally changed when Jesus rose from the dead. And so Christian joy was not just an emotion. It was an attitude grounded in this fact that we're rejoicing because Jesus is up from the dead and He is King. And that is King over all of our circumstances. He's King over absolutely everything that involves us. And nothing changes that fact. And so Paul could burst into song, no matter the prison, no matter the execution, no matter what it was that was unfolding, because his joys were attached to this broader, bigger story that had been established through the resurrection. Now, many of you have not had the chance to meet my daughter. Hopefully you will soon. Um, They're supposed to move here next Saturday. 
Okay, so at long last, you can burst into applause if you like. Uh, <laughs> I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's almost over. Um, she's three, and the other week before I left Arlington, um, she gave me some instructions. She said, Daddy, you go over there and sit. And so I went over and sat. And then she began to give me a script, and I didn't understand what was happening. And I, I looked at Melissa very puzzled, and I said, what is she talking about? And, she, and Melissa had no clue what was happening. But she, there was some kind of elaborate script that I was supposed to be playing out, and, and it became clear that I had a character, and I had a particular role, and I did something wrong, and she corrected me, and she said, no, you sit there and you do this. And it was so confusing because I didn't know the script, and I'm living blind to the script, and she's enforcing the script on me. And I wasn't going to go anywhere because um, of her strength. And then later that afternoon, she asked to watch a video, and it was Princess Sophia. And I suddenly, as I was watching Princess Sophie, I began to understand what script it was that we had been playing out that morning. That it was the show, and I was supposed to be the other princess. Now, I don't know quite how that came about, but <laughs> there was this script, and it had gotten down into her where she was living out Princess Sophie, and she was convinced she was Sophie, and she was convinced I was the other one. And friends, that's what is to happen to us with the gospel. That this story of God's reconciling all things, of Jesus being king, is to be worked down into our bones. So much so that it becomes a script that we are acting out and living in. Where we're believing that there is a greater reality than the up and down of our circumstances. Because our life will be filled with variance but that Jesus is king, that he conquers over all sin, that he conquers over all evil, that he conquers even death itself, that no adversity can ultimately destroy us. And perhaps one of the biggest challenges in being a Christian is writing that story into our bones. Where when someone challenges it, like I challenged Mackenzie's little script, you insist, no. Play your part. <laughs> This is the true story. This is reality. This is what is going on. This is how God rules the world. This is life as it was intended to be. And we must work really hard to write that script into our hearts. And perhaps one of the greatest tragedies that happens in the church is that we relate to the gospel just as a mechanism for getting saved, for going to heaven, and then we go about our lives. It's something like fire insurance. And it's so dead wrong. Because the gospel is so much more than that. It's an announcement of God's reign in Jesus over all things. Of God reconciling them to Himself in grace. And He welcomes us into this great big story to frame and understand our entire life through it. For it to be worked out. And what it leads to is this rejoicing. A celebration. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. And it is that song that allows us to reinterpret all of life. It gives us a pair of glasses through which we look on everything, even our own death. 
as we'll see in the second half of Philippians 1. Paul can understand the great enemy of death even in a particular light because of King Jesus. Friends, that's what the Gospel offers to do for us. That's its challenge in our lives. And will it lead us to rejoice? Individually, corporately, let it bring forth this new song because of all of, all of its benefits and all of its blessings. Let's pray. Father, we confess that um, joy is not a natural thing to us. That especially when we face adversity and hardship in life, if we were looking at circumstances like the Apostle Paul's, that we would be filled with despair. Help us to focus on the joy that is ours because Jesus is up from the dead, that He rules over everything, that He's the King of all the world. Help us to frame our circumstances and our lives in light of that. And Lord, will joy pour forth from us? Will it exude from our hearts because we're so captivated by this great story, the reality of our world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.